I'm not sure how I feel about that kind of a dramatic solution. However, I have no problem ignoring people I know. I hope they don't take that the wrong way. Welcome to Keep the Flow, the podcast that looks under the hood of the creative process to keep your creative engine humming. I'm your host, Scott McLemore, a drummer and composer living way up north in Iceland. I've been involved in various creative pursuits, including working in graphic design and writing about creativity. In this podcast, I'm going to share with you what I've learned along the way. Here we go. I've been trying to figure out the perfect title for this episode, and I can't, because it's something that I find a little hard to talk about. So far, I've come up with making a creative living without losing your soul, and art and commerce, not a match made in heaven, or is it? Then there was, is making money bad for your art? I'm sure none of these will be my final choice, but you get what I'm saying. Trying to make a living from our creativity is tricky. It's tricky to pull off, period, but also to do so in a way that doesn't hurt the thing that made us want to do it to begin with. Wow, the subject of this episode brings back so many memories of discussions with my parents when I was a teenager. Just to be clear, they have been very supportive of me. I'm incredibly lucky. But when I told them I wanted to drop out of school and go on the road with a rock band... I could hear them both swallow hard. First of all, my mom was a high school guidance counselor. Her job was basically to keep other people's kids from doing just what I was trying to do. I didn't even have my driver's license when I broached the subject. They were perplexed. At first I was met with some resistance, but I can be pretty convincing. My own guidance counselor was not convinced, though. I remember quite a few awkward conversations leading up to the day that I emptied my locker for the last time. She tried to tell me that it was highly unlikely that I would be successful in the music business. But I remember thinking, what do I care about the music business? I just want to play drums. And I guess I was a bit of an unusual case since I was literally obsessed with drumming. It's all I did. To my younger sister's dismay, from the time I got home from school to the time I went to bed, with a quick break for dinner, I was on the drums. I figured out that from age 14 to 18, I practiced around 6 hours a day, which is approaching Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours theory. Seems like I should be a better drummer by now. Hmm. Anyway, I knew that if I wanted to do this for real, I had to quit school. I had auditioned for a new band with guys that were in their 20s, and they were booking gigs out of town. I had a choice to make, but I never thought about having to pay bills or put gas in the car, despite my guidance counselor's efforts. Making a living as a creative person was so far from my mind. I just always had a feeling that if I put all my energy into what I loved, everything would work out somehow. And it kind of has. For a lot of that, I have my wife to thank. But enough about me. What I'm trying to get at in a roundabout way is that our creative instincts start out in a very pure place. When we feel that calling, making money is usually the furthest thing from our minds. 
But when we pursue creative careers, most of us eventually bump into this wall where we can't just do whatever we want. Not everyone. There are certainly many who have carved out a place for themselves in this crazy world where they still get to call the shots. And sometimes that means having an alternative source of income. But if you end up as a writer who has an editor or an actor with a director or a director with an executive producer, we might start off just acting on our own ideas and trying to manifest them as best we can. But if you're a musician and suddenly you find yourself in a band or you're a designer who suddenly finds yourself with a client or an art director, you are confronted with the experience of having to bring someone else's ideas into being, having to change what you thought was the best way forward in order to keep the project on track can be traumatic at first. It's like if you grew up an only child and were homeschooled and always alone at recess, you would never get the experience of learning to share and play with other kids. And then at some point you end up in an awkward situation at a birthday party when you're confronted with the reality that there are other kids in this world who also want to play with that toy. For most of us, creativity starts out as a one-person show. We draw, we write, compose, practice, and dream alone. And then when we enter the creative marketplace, we have to confront the realities of creating with others. If we say, my way or the highway, every time someone doesn't like our ideas, It might be a brave artistic stand to take. There's actually a lot to get into there psychologically. But in terms of trying to make a living, if we can't function in a band or with a client or in a firm, we will have a hard time paying the bills. So how do we balance being driven by this unseen force of the universe, our muse, our source of ideas, and also trying to make a living at it? which can mean sacrificing those very ideas or at least putting them on hold. In this episode, I want to talk about the uneasy marriage of art and commerce and how to make a living from creativity in the age of AI. Let's get started. There's this great book called How to Be a Graphic Designer Without Losing Your Soul by Adrian Shaughnessy. I read it when it came out in 2004 because I was struggling with working for clients. Okay, I guess I'm not done talking about me. So as a drummer, I made a decision without really realizing it that I didn't want to be a session player. I didn't want to play gigs that I didn't find fulfilling. I had done the rock band thing where everything had to be super tight and it was always the same, no surprises. It was really fun at first, but then I gravitated more to jazz and loved the freedom that it gave me. But living in New York was expensive and gigs didn't cover the rent, so I was temping. That's temporary employment for those who don't know. I signed up with an agency, and they started sending me out on jobs. I think the agency was called the Lori Girls. <clears throat> they changed it at some point to the Lori, I can't remember what it was, Lori something. Lori Agency, I think. But I was one of the Lori Girls. So anyway, they, they started sending me out on jobs, mostly answering phones to begin with. But 
then because I listed Adobe Photoshop and Illustrator as skills, they started sending me out to answer phones at ad agencies, maybe because they figured I was creative. One of the places they sent me, I can't remember the name of it, but it was an advertising agency that was owned by a drummer. There were no walls or cubicles, just a wide open space with desks and bean bags and a pool table. It, I was like, finally, I know where I'm supposed to be. But the owner would sporadically hop on the drums and go bananas like every 20 minutes or so. And while he was playing, everything in the office stopped. No one could talk. No one could think. It was awesome. Anyway, I don't want to give you my entire employment history, but long story short, I got really into graphic design. First it was just a way to pay the bills, and then it became more of a passion. A friend introduced me to a brilliant guy named DeRoy Peraza, who had just graduated from Parsons and was starting his own company called Hyperact, and I started working for him. But where my career as a musician had led me to a place of really individual expression, graphic design exposed me to a completely different take on creativity, making something for someone else. The question wasn't, do I like it? It was, does it work? Does it accomplish what it needs to? Is it the best solution for the client? My own taste wasn't a consideration. At least that's what I felt like at the time. Now I see it a little differently. But then I was trying to be the opposite of my drummer self, trying to learn as much as I could about important designers like Paul Rand and Josef Müller-Brockmann. It was the least I could do since I was billing them by the hour. I also felt a little bit like I was following in my grandfather's footsteps, who was an illustrator for the local newspaper in Virginia. My wife, Suna, was also a graduate student at Pratt, and so she was coming home with design homework and stories from class. We were immersed in design. I learned a lot during that time, not just about design, but about working with people. Of course, I had played music with other people, but when you're a jazz musician, in most situations, the people you're playing with just trust you to do your thing. That's why they called you to begin with. In design, there was an element of trust based on work you had already done, but there were always revisions. Sometimes the client would change their mind about something that would result in scrapping some or even most of the work. I, I didn't know how to handle those kind of things. I was a little like the homeschooled kid at the birthday party, shocked to realize I don't get to decide how everything goes. I remember having dinner once with an architect, and I told them how cool I thought it was to be able to imagine a building and then see it in real life, to be able to walk inside it. Their response was something like, there are so many other people involved in the process, whatever I imagined is long gone by the time it gets built. Still, there is a sense of accomplishment, even after all the phone calls and changes to the design, even if your own preferred direction was not taken. But to get to that point, we have to be open, not just to our own ideas, but to all ideas. Creativity takes many forms. There's no wrong way to do it. One of the great lines in The Creative Act by Rick Rubin, which I just got done with, is when he compares living as an artist to living as a monk. He says, living life as an artist is a practice. You are either engaging in the practice or you're not. It makes no sense to say you're not good at it. You're either living as a monk or you're not. I love that quote. 
It doesn't matter what we've made or how we did it. We're moving through the world with the senses of an artist. That's who we are. Using our abilities for someone else is not for everyone, though. It takes a certain level of detachment. Once I was CC'd on an email for a project where multiple people on the client side were involved. It was not nice. They were pretty harsh about the comps that I had done, not realizing that I was on the email chain. Those are the kind of things I never had to worry about on the jazz scene. But it was a learning experience. We have to understand that we don't have a monopoly on the muse. Everyone is a potential vessel for amazing ideas. If we're only focused on what's going on within us, we miss out on all the activity around us. Okay, let's talk about making a living with our creativity in the present tense. So much has changed since I was scraping my rent together in New York. The internet has created a global marketplace with Fiverr driving rates down for creative work, Spotify has ruined the music business, and now AI is here to drive the nail in the coffin, right? I'm not sure. I mean, yes, those things are real, but I don't think that's the end of the story. In the next section, let's get into the current state of things and how we creatives can survive. Okay, we're back, and it felt like things were getting a little dark at the end there. Sorry about that. We're going to, we're going to turn that frown upside down, though. I promise. First of all, let's establish that in order to be highly creative, there is no requirement to make money from it. There are plenty of creative people who make their living another way so that they can keep the creative side of their life more pure. I totally respect that. Charles Ives was an insurance salesman for most of his adult life. He is regarded as one of the most important American composers. Franz Kafka was also in the insurance business in Prague, and most of his writings, those he didn't burn, were published after his death. Same with Emily Dickinson. I mean, she was an insurance salesman, but she didn't make any money from it. She's considered one of the most important American poets, but she never earned a cent from her work. The idea of the starving artist is an old stereotype that really should be relegated to history, but I think most people still have this idea that in order to really be creative, they have to endure financial hardship. Yes, it would be wonderful if we could all just get paid fairly for our creative output. Can you imagine? But the reality is that not everyone is that fortunate, and some of us are content to earn an income from other means while continuing to pursue our creative goals regardless of the compensation. However, it's also great to get paid. And in the interest of full transparency, I don't make a living only by playing music. My income is wildly different from month to month. I teach three days a week in order to have a steady base salary. Everything else is constantly up and down. My wife and I, she's also a musician, we have various income streams. You could say we're diversified. Bandcamp is a big part of that. When we release a new album, that usually boosts our income for a moment. There are a flurry of reviews and then it dies down. We also have a production company. She developed a concert series and a festival, and then any touring we do and music sales from live shows all feeds into the production company. 
None of this was the result of any strategy. We're just doing what we find interesting or exciting, and the income is just a byproduct of that. But I realized at some point that the more we do, the better off we are. In the 2000s, or is it aughts? Do we say aughts? Anyway, two writers at Wired Magazine started pontificating about how the internet would become the foundation of a creator economy. Chris Anderson, who was the editor of Wired Magazine, now he's the uh, actually the guy who organizes TED Talks, I think. He coined this phrase that I'm sure you've heard, the long tail, which is basically that instead of looking to find a few products that are hugely popular, a large amount of different niche products could be as profitable or more. If you imagine a bar graph with the most popular items on the left with the highest bars, most sales, and gradually the sales get less and less, but if you have more or less popular items, that sloping tail can go on and on and on. It helps to think of a brontosaurus with a long neck but a really long tail. The implications of this theory are wonderful for, say, an author with a large bibliography or a musician with a considerable back catalog. In our experience, this rings somewhat true. Suna has a discography of, I think, 12 albums, which we own in full. They're on our own label. And it happens pretty often that someone will discover one of her albums, buy it on Bandcamp, and then come back a few days later and buy a bunch of her older albums. Whereas I only have four albums that we released. The first one is on another label. We don't talk about that one. So that happens with my stuff too, but on a much smaller scale. But we've been at it for a long time. If you're just starting out, how can you make a long enough tale in a short enough time to make it worthwhile? And do we really want artists to be cranking out work because the quantity is valued over quality? Another writer and co-founder of Wired, Kevin Kelly, had an idea about how creators could earn a living with a modest audience of diehard fans. The idea goes, if you have a thousand true, quote-unquote, true fans who are willing to pay you $100 a year, that's a decent living. To be clear, I'm not in this category, last I checked. It's a nice idea, but how does one get a thousand quote-unquote true fans, which he defines as people who are willing to drive 200 miles to see your gig? That's a pretty high bar. First of all, not every creative has gigs. But setting that aside for now, the math to even get to a thousand fans is a serious endeavor. Not everyone is going to like what we do enough to want to join our mailing list or buy an album or whatever. What percentage of people that hear about us are going to fall into the category of fan? Being generous, if we say it's 10%, that means to have a chance at a thousand true fans, you would need to get the attention of 10,000 people. But these days, you could end up with a thousand people who might stream you once on Spotify and that's it. The math to get to a thousand in reality is way more complicated when you take into account that it needs to be a hundred dollars of profit per fan. There are so many variables and exceptions it makes my head hurt trying to understand, but the takeaway message is that in order to arrive at a thousand true fans, we would have to market 
to an incredible amount of people, possibly in the millions. But don't forget to be authentic while doing this. <laughs> Every time I look into ways to leverage social media to target people that are more likely to like what I do, it makes me feel icky just thinking about it. And this is not a marketing podcast. Still, there are lessons we can learn from these theories. Firstly, yes, we can create creative work for a niche audience and be successful at it without having to go viral. So we have to find our niche. That's step one. And then step two is making a whole bunch of work that fits that niche. And then we just sit back and let the fans have at it, right? Well, in order to do that, we have to find people who like what we do. The more work we create, the more opportunities there are for people to experience our work and the longer the tail we grow. Now, I know I just said that using social media makes me feel icky, which is kind of true, but it really is the best tool we have at our disposal to connect with fans. And this is coming from someone who deleted his Twitter account when the name of the company changed. When we come back, I want to get a little deeper into the weeds about social media and how we can use it to our advantage without losing our soul. listen to any previous episodes, you'll know that I don't have any sponsors for the show. Honestly, I haven't even tried to get any. I'm still just getting my feet wet with this whole podcasting thing. But one way you can support the show and get early access to episodes is by becoming a patron. I've been doing Patreon for about a year now, and it's been a behind-the-scenes look at my own creative process. But now that I'm podcasting, I'll be creating exclusive content related to the show just for my patrons. We're talking extended interviews, bonus episodes, feedback sessions, and more. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month, and it really warms my heart to know that my patrons are out there supporting my efforts, giving feedback, and just being awesome. As always, I'll have links in the episode notes to this and any books that are referenced in the episode. Using any of these affiliate links really helps support the show as well. It's not a huge cut that I get. It's around 4%, but every little bit helps. And now, back to Keep the Flow. then Ace Ventura I had a student come in last Halloween dressed as Ace Ventura and it was this amazing moment I was the only person who guessed her costume I guess Ace isn't big in Iceland so there was this connection and after that I would always start our lessons with alrighty then that's actually a really good example of that kind of personal connection that we have to strive for with our fans finding the things that we have in common. So I mentioned that I deleted my Twitter account. Yes, that was a hard decision. I actually had quite a nice time on Twitter in the early days. I signed up when it was just starting out, 
seemed like a big chaotic chat room. And just trying to figure out how to use it, I knew I wanted to find people with similar tastes to me, so I so I searched for different stuff that I was into to see if anyone else was talking about it, and, and then I might comment on something and follow them. And One of these people was a photographer in London named Jake Messenger. Hi, Jake. And I ended up using his photos for my album Remote Location. My wife also connected with a musician in Amsterdam, which turned into a duo project, which resulted in an album and several tours. So social media is not all bad, but it can be bad, as we all know. Put your hand up if you've lost three hours to scrolling on social media when you were supposed to be writing music. You can't see, but I have my hand up. We could have been making something. I mean, how many times do we need to see that dog playing piano? He's cute and all, but still. When it comes to social media, and this is hard, but we need to be our own parents. We need to set limits on how much or how often we use it. I think it makes sense to use it for connecting with people, as long as that is at a certain time with a defined purpose. The willpower needed to resist the mindless scroll is going to take some effort, though. I heard someone suggesting that if we want to use the social media platform for your work, you need to first unfollow everyone there, all your friends and family, and just reserve it for people connecting with your creative work. I'm not sure how I feel about that kind of a dramatic solution. However, I have no problem ignoring people I know. I hope they don't take that the wrong way. And I don't mean ignoring messages from them. I mean not scrolling so I don't see their lovely posts. God, I sound like a monster now. But it's about using our time effectively. We have to limit our exposure to this stuff. In other words, slow your scroll. Having a dedicated time to engage with people on social media is so much better than just responding to random dings throughout the day, which is taking you out of the zone or worse. It's putting your brain into a fight or flight mode multiple times a day. So turn off the notifications and give yourself however much time you think you need. Could be 15 minutes, could be an hour. And write that into your calendar once a day. Feel free to move it around if you need to. Just try to stick to only opening Instagram, Facebook, and that other one at the time in your calendar. And engage, don't scroll. And these engagements need to be real. Targeting people with ads might be more efficient in the short run, but connecting with people still needs a human on the other side of that equation. Also, I should mention, I'm on Mastodon, which is awesome. I know it's not as popular as the for-profit ones, but I love it. In the next section, we'll talk about how technology is eating our lunch and how we can take some of it back. Speaking of podcasts, I was just listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, interviewing designer Stefan Sagmeister. His new book is called Now is Better, and it's all about how despite all of our woes, humans are better off today than we were in the past. 
I appreciate his willingness to take a bold position, but it's a little more nuanced than that. I haven't read the book, so maybe I should just shut up. I want to agree with him, though. I guess you could say I'm a reluctant optimist. If we look at the creative industries on their own, how do they compare now to, say, in the 90s? Okay, the gatekeepers no longer run things, or are the algorithms the new gatekeepers? Instead of executives at a record label, TV network, or design firm deciding who gets a break, now it's algorithms at Spotify, Netflix, or Fiverr who decide what's relevant. It has leveled the playing field somewhat, but it has also created opportunities for people to game the systems. And then there's that whole AI thing. What's that all about? I remember before Prince died, he had set up a Paisley Park private website, basically a subscription service with exclusive content. I don't know exactly how it was. I I wasn't a member, but he was ahead of his time. It was in response to illegal downloading, like Napster. This is before Spotify. He knew the way forward was to create an exclusive experience for his true fans, which brings me to the subscription model. And I'm not talking about subscriptions to streaming services. I mean like Patreon or Bandcamp. A lot of people don't even realize Bandcamp offers subscriptions. While Patreon is for way more than just musicians, it isn't the answer to all of our prayers, but it's a step in the right direction. I can tell you from experience that it's a lot of work. I'm incredibly thankful for my patrons, and it works for me personally, but I sometimes struggle to keep up with the content I've set out to create. And what if you're a graphic designer? Sites like Fiverr, Freelancer, and Upwork have turned that profession upside down. It's still possible to do really well there if you know how to position yourself. I don't know firsthand, but so I've heard. But then they turn around and take up to 20% from the designers, which seems pretty steep. Then I heard about a guy named Brett Williams who created a company called DesignJoy, which is just him designing websites for people. But he takes on clients as subscribers. He calls this business model productized services. It's an interesting idea, and it seems to be applicable to a lot of creative work beyond graphic design, like copywriting, video editing, audio production, photography, almost anything you can think of that could somehow be packaged in a way that clients who need creative work done regularly can just subscribe. It's a little like having a retainer. I mean, like lawyers do, not the kind for your teeth. And then there's Etsy or Gumroad if we just want to sell stuff we made. One of my favorite artists on the internet is Pat Rosario, who goes by number four soft taco on Instagram. She carves her designs from linoleum and hand prints everything. Her work is both funny and revealing. It feels deeply personal and yet somehow universal and super quirky. She sells on Etsy and a website called The Crafted Prints but she also just started offering subscriptions to a private Instagram account. I guess subscriptions on Instagram have been a thing for a while now, but this was the first I heard of it. Maybe I'm just a little behind. As I got into preparing for this episode, I realized that I really don't like talking about making money. 
That's not what I envisioned myself doing when I decided to take the plunge with this podcast. I certainly don't have all the answers, and much of what I talked about you might have already have heard somewhere else. The thing is, I would do all of this regardless of the money. I say that, and it feels true in my heart. But if there was no audience, how would I do all this? How would I go on the road? Who would pay for my hotel room? And who would I connect with? The fact is, I'm very lucky to be able to do what I do and then get on the mic here and talk all your ears off about it. If you're just starting out as a creative today, I can't imagine what it would feel like to graduate from an art school and realize AI is just a couple of weeks away from being able to do in a nanosecond everything you just spent four years learning. My feeling is that there will be a movement of creatives away from computers back toward handmade work. Already my daughters prefer physical books than reading on a Kindle or iPad. They would rather wait for the real thing in the mail, which is quite a wait when you live in Iceland. Vinyl records have already made a comeback and continue to grow for the 16th year in a row, coming in last year at 45 times what sales were in 2006. I think we need the human element to be able to connect with art. Even with work that's made on a computer, people go to great pains to try to inject some beautiful imperfections like a textured overlay in Adobe Illustrator or a tube amp simulator in Pro Tools. When Stefan Sagmeister uses his own handwriting in his design work, he is drawing on that need we have for connection. When an artist answers a comment on social media to the delight of the fan, that's the connection we crave with the work, with the artist, with the universe. I think as long as we can continue to make that connection, we'll be just fine. That's all I've got today. Speaking of social media, thanks to everyone who's reached out about the show. It really means a lot to me. Can't wait to catch you in the next episode. Until then, keep the flow.